Well, good morning in the room. Good morning online. Glad to spend this Resurrection Sunday with you. Earlier in the patio, one of our many Greek nerds um, was reminding me of the scene from uh, the movie Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, Greek nerd, not meaning they are Greek and a nerd, but a nerd about Greek, a Bible scholar, so just in case that was unclear. Um, and uh, there's a scene in there where it's, it's Easter time and all the family is greeting the guy that's marrying into the family. Of course, he doesn't have a clue what's going on. And so they keep coming, Christos Anesti, and then Aletheia Anesti, and he's like, what does that mean? And one of them says, it, it means Happy Easter. And um, it doesn't. I mean, I guess derivatively it does, but it means Christ has resurrected. The resurrection is, it's true, it's, it's, it's real. We say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And you probably came in, if you have much history in church, expecting that we would do that, we would say that. That's just kind of part of, part of our um, heritage. But with the common nature of, of those words, it's easy to kind of just reduce it to saying, well, it's happy Easter. And it means a whole lot more than that, because Jesus rising from the dead literally changed the nature of reality and history and, and everything. And, um, you know, the original disciples would have um, probably experienced a lot of different emotions during that final week, and the resurrection itself, first it took a while to sink in. They just they had a hard time believing it. They would see him. Is he a ghost? What's going on? Should, how do we respond to him? But once it finally sank in, it changed everything, because that last week was a really, really brutal week for them. If you think about it, they're coming into the city of Jerusalem on, on, on Palm Sunday. It's supposed to be this great day of, of victory and rejoicing, and they're expecting him to be made king and sit on the throne and, and everyone's gathering is just it's going to be amazing. And during that that one short week, they experienced this shocking reversal of fortune. They experienced uh, intrigue and betrayal and um, plotting and injustice and all kinds of um, just horrible things. It was a horrible week. There was brutality involved, and, and they, they came in with these high hopes, and, and, and those were all dashed. They, they literally watched hope die on a cross. They, they came in with expectations that were just shattered at their feet. And so um, when Jesus rises from the dead, it, it transforms everything. They, 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 they realize that all of the things that they were expecting are going to come just not the way they were expecting them to come. And that the tragedy that they think they have faced has actually been carefully measured out to them by God to accomplish exactly his purposes. And that the um, seeming randomness of things at a deeper level isn't random at all. There's something going on and God's in complete control. And hope hasn't died at all, it's been reborn. And there's ultimately no loss. That's a really radical shift that they experience. Um, and in our remembering of Easter and what happened, I think it's really important that we would kind of recapture some of the, some of the fresh, freshness, that it doesn't get lost in uh, its familiarity, that it doesn't just get reduced to happy Easter. So if you have a Bible, would you open to Genesis chapter three? I'm gonna take us to actually a number of passages. If you wanna try to keep up with me, you're welcome to. Uh, But for most people, it's probably easier just to listen and then I'll catch up with you in Genesis three in a few minutes. Uh, Before we dive into the word though, let's let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you. Thank you for your work on the cross. 
and we are so grateful for what you did, and we're so excited that the resurrection means everything you claimed was true, and everything you offer is real, and everything has changed. We're grateful for that, and we pray that in this moment we would be able to just um, understand and experience the reality of Easter in a fresh way that would be transformative for us. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You know um, that familiarity of the of the gospel is um, something that when we're long time in church is easy to just kind of creep in and forget how powerful, how beautiful, how amazing the story is that God would enter the world, that He would take on human form, that He would become just like you and me, except for sin. He would live a sinless life and offer His life in exchange for mine. He would allow Himself to be put to death, and then He would rise again offering a new life to me. It's, that's an amazing story. And, and it becomes kind of commonplace if we're not careful. And as I was thinking this week, I was remembering a time when it was really brought back um, with some intensity to me and, and, and kind of the layers of, of familiarity were stripped away so I could encounter it a little bit fresh. And the story actually ended with me um, in one of the most awkward moments that I can recall. I was in a uh, little hut in India and it was no bigger than a small bedroom in most of our homes. And it was made out of woven bamboo with mud daubed on the side and a thatched roof and a hard mud floor. And it was in a very remote rural area at the far edge of a village. And um, I was in that hut and crowded next to me was my translator. Um, And at my feet, prostrate before me, was this elderly 85-year-old woman who had thrown herself at my feet and was, was clutching at them. Um, and in order to understand what's going on, let me back up a little bit. Quite a few months prior to that, I had uh, been interacting with um, somebody I know, and we were talking about mission opportunity, and um, he was trying to get me to go on a, a trip to this place because the people there had asked for somebody to come and uh, I said, that's great, but I already have plenty of, um, I have plenty of opportunity. We, we have plenty of people that we're partnered with around the world. I'm traveling all over the place. I don't need one more trip. I don't need one more thing to do. I don't need to open up one more area for us to focus on. We're just one small church. We can only do so much. And he just kept pestering me. He kept at it and at it and at it. And then finally, he started saying, what if I do this? What if I do this? And, he, and he, he tried to solve the problems. And in that moment, it's like, wait, I need to back up and slow down. He's really insistent. Maybe I should take this a little more seriously and pray about it a little bit more and say, God, is this really something you want. And lo and behold, when I did that, it's like, yeah, you should probably do this. So I did. And I I took a a few people with me and we we wound up in this rural area of India. And the first night we're there, we're being kind of oriented to the people group that we're with. We're making connection with uh, new friends and and getting connected with our partners that are going to work in ministry and be translators. They're all great in English and we have no ability in their language. So Um, We need to get to know them a little bit better. A guy comes up to me and introduces himself to me and wants to talk for a little while. His name is Gopichand. And Gopichand um, said, uh, you need to know my story. I, um, quite a few years ago, I was deathly ill. So ill that my family took me to the hospital, small rural hospital, not with a lot of high-tech stuff. The doctors didn't know what to do. I got sicker and sicker until finally, um, I was no longer responsive, and they, were, they assumed I was dead. 
They couldn't find any signs of life. They pronounced me dead and had me carried to the section of the hospital they used for a morgue and left me on the table so that my family could come and get my body and take it and bury it. And that's all fine and good, except I was still alive and I was aware of being alive and I was aware of what they were doing and for whatever reason, I don't know what was going on, but I couldn't communicate. I couldn't make any sign of life and I was terrified because here they were gonna, they were gonna take me and bury me and I'm alive. And he said, I just started to cry out to God in my mind, or God's, I should say. Now, Gopichan's a, a believer, a Christian by this point, but he said, I called out to every God I knew. And remember, I was a Hindu. I knew a lot of gods. I spent a lot of time calling out to every single one I could think of, and nothing would happen. Nothing happened, nothing. And I'm getting more and more desperate. It's getting more and more terrifying until... I've run out of gods. I can't think of a single other god to pray to. And then I realize, oh, but, but the area also has a, a fair number of Muslims. So I, I've heard about uh, Muhammad and Allah. I'll cry out and see if I get an answer there. And I prayed and nothing happened. And by this point, I'm panicking because I can't, for the life of me, make any indication that there's life in me. And I know what's going to happen. And I can't do anything about it. And I'm just scouring my mind, trying to think, is there anything that I can do? And suddenly it flashes into my mind that somewhere I heard about a God named Jesus. And so I cried out and I said, Jesus, if you're real, if you're God, save me. He said, at that exact moment, I pitched off the table I was on and I stood up completely healed. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, right. Right, uh, this is not my experience. I don't know anyone who's experienced this, come on. So I'm watching him really closely, wondering, is he, is he like playing with me? Here's the big goofy American watch. I'm gonna have a little fun, and in a minute I'm gonna elbow him and go, nah, just kidding, here's what actually happened. He said, no, that's what happened. That's really what happened. And I walked out of the hospital, and I had to learn about Jesus. And I, I searched out, I found out more about Jesus, and I understood, and I, I, I followed. I chose to follow him. I, I became a follower of Jesus, and most of my family came to faith in Christ. In fact, his son-in-law was the pastor that was leading this fledgling group of Christians and that had asked us to join them. And uh, we're trying to reach our people here in this area of India. And that's why you're here, because we've been... We've been faithful in sharing with our family and friends, but they're not always receptive to even talking. But we, and so we started praying some time ago, God, bring us somebody, bring us a partner that people will listen to, that will at least open the door that we can then follow up on, and that's how you wind up here. And we want to go out, and they will open the door and listen to you, and then in the process, the gospel power can be working in lives, and we can follow up, and we can disciple, we can encourage, and, and, and God will use this. That's our prayer. Thank you for being here. Well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty moving first evening. And I remember the first time we went out, the very first moment before we walk into the village, my translator turned to me, and he said, this is the first time they're hearing this. And I looked back at him. I said, hearing What? said, this is the first time they're hearing the gospel. This is the first time they're hearing even the name Jesus. Like, wow, amazing. Right? In, in moments like that, suddenly what we have and what we treat as common become much more precious. These people have never even heard this. They don't even know what we're talking about. I'm going to bring to them the potential for new life. There was another village we went to, and... Um, 
When we got there, it was a pretty good-sized village. The villages were just scattered. Uh, most of them were pretty small, but there would be a little cluster of houses, usually in the banana trees and kind of jungle around, and then out in front of them there would be a, a group of um, rice paddies with these built-up trails in between them, and then you'd walk the trail further back into the jungly area, and there'd be an opening, and there'd be more rice paddies, and there'd be a few more huts, and then you'd walk further back, and it repeated itself throughout. So these villages could be pretty spread out, and this was the biggest village in the area, and when we got there, my translator just said, come on, let's go, and he just started walking, and he kept walking and walking and walking. We walked past cluster after cluster of houses. I'm like, why aren't we talking to these people? Why aren't we talking to these people? Just keep going. I think we need to keep going, and then a guy comes and meets us just kind of randomly, and he, and he talks to my translator, and I can't understand the word they're saying, and then my translator turns to me and says, we're going back with this guy. And he takes us all the way to the furthest edge of the village where there's nothing else beyond it. There's just a few huts there at the end of the fields, and nobody is there except in one hut, there's this 85-year-old woman, and he takes us straight into her hut and said, here, you should talk to her. And then the moment we start talking, he leaves. So it's just me, my translator, and this elderly woman. And so we start telling her the story of Jesus, and we do it similarly, actually, to what Jesus did with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, that first Easter Sunday, where it says he opened their minds to the scriptures, and he told them about the things about himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and kind of walked all the way through and said, here's, here's what God's doing, here's what's happened, and here's who Jesus is. And as we're sharing this, I can just see her understanding open up and her heart open up and her begin to embrace this and she, she falls in love with Jesus. Just as I'm watching her, you can see it in her eyes and you can see it in her face. She's really responding. But she's never heard this before. So as the story gets dark, I'm a little startled that her face gets all contorted and, 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 and deeply concerned. And when, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, these huge tears form and start rolling down her cheeks and start hitting the mud floor in front of us. And it's, I, I almost lose my concentration because I'm not used to people responding to the story of Jesus that way. It's become so common. And yet, that's the right response. She doesn't know what happens next. She's just heard about the most amazing person, the one who God sent, God himself, and people are putting him to death in this brutal and horrible way, and then he dies, and that's when it really tears her heart out. And I'm just watching her emotions, and it's, it's bringing the story fresh to me. And then when, when we get to the Easter part of the story, to Resurrection Sunday, and Jesus comes out of the grave. It's like electricity runs through this little old lady's body, and, and it, she's, she's almost like Nate up here on the stage, where it's just like exuberance. She's so excited. You just can't contain it, because something amazing has happened, and it's affecting her immediately. It's not covered over with all these layers of tradition and history, and yeah, yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that. It's astounding to me. And then, as, as we talk a little bit more and, and, and we're talking about how she might respond, I want to illustrate a point. And so I stand up and step out of the hut because that's what you have to do. If you're going to stand up, it's really small. There's not a space inside the hut. So I stand up and step out of the hut and immediately she's been sitting on this little homemade bed and we've been sitting on two of those very, very, very cheap plastic chairs that you can... Well, I don't know if you can get them in American stores because they're like the cheapest ones we'd have and then even cheaper, right? And so we're sitting on these chairs very gingerly. She launches herself out of this bed that she's sitting on and grabs onto my translator with distress because she's afraid I'm leaving. 
She's like, don't let him get away. I don't know what's happening next, but I need to hear it. Don't let him get away. And when we understand what's going on, just relax, it's okay. He's just illustrating a point. He couldn't actually fit inside the house and show you this, so he's gonna do it there. Great relief. And then eventually, to kind of come to the end of that gospel story, she responds. She responds, and in that moment, she's so overwhelmed. She's so grateful, she's so moved. She throws herself at my feet. And she tries to latch on to the, if you will, the feet of the messenger, and I'm like, I, I get it. I mean, she's not worshiping, she's just so moved, and, but it's, it's still kind of creepy for me. No, no, please stand up, please stand up. I mean, I'm just the messenger, I'm just the messenger. But there's this, there's this moment where something powerful has happened, and she has to respond. And as we finish up the conversation and are about to leave, and he's taken all the information because he's the national, he's the one who's really going to be there to follow up and to encourage and disciple. She says this. She says, I understand now. I've lived longer than all of my family and all of my friends. I'm older than everyone I've known. I've watched them all die, and I've never gotten it. Why am I still here? I haven't wanted to be here. Life is hard. I don't want to keep living. Why am I still here? And today I understand. God kept me alive so that you could come and tell me about Jesus. It's like, wow, that's amazing. That's a fresh engagement with what has become common that actually matches to what it, you know, the significance of what happened. When we come here and we say, Christos Anesti, Aletha Anesti, He is risen, He is risen indeed. It's not just words. Something extraordinary has happened. Something extraordinary and transformative has happened that we need to freshly engage with and go, and praise God, thank you, and then be able to respond. So what happened? We've, we've looked several times now. We looked on Good Friday, and we looked on Palm Sunday, and, and so this morning I'll just read you some of the same verses. Did I already send you to Genesis 3, by the way? Okay, you're sitting in Genesis 3. You're on target. And uh, let me just read you... Uh, Part of the back. Well, let me read you this verse. I think this is really important to remind ourselves. Paul is writing, and he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Like, this is the important thing. Everything else is less significant. This is the number one thing. What is it? It's what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he recounts how he appeared to so many people. It's like, this is the most important thing. Jesus died and he rose again, and there's a bunch of us who can confirm that. That's the most important thing. When Jesus appeared to his first disciples on the Emmaus Road, he said this to them, because they don't understand yet who he is. They're walking along the road. They haven't recognized him. They're having a conversation. Actually allows the conversation to unfold more naturally, because they don't know it's Jesus. And then he sees into their hearts, and he sees that they aren't getting it yet. And here's what he says. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You guys are hung up on false expectations. You thought God was going to do certain things. He told you beforehand, and, and you need to have your hearts catch up. They're slow. They need to catch up. You need to gain some wisdom here because you're foolish. I want to I help you understand God's doing something great. And this thing that you've seen over this last week that seems so tragic, it seemed like the wheels came off the car. It seemed like everything fell apart. It seemed like your dreams were shattered. These are people who are head down, trudging away from Jerusalem, abandoning their dream. It's like, 
You don't need to abandon your dream. The dream is actually starting to come true. It just had to come true differently than you were thinking, and the prophets told you all about that. When Jesus is on the cross, one of the lines that he says last, it's finished. It is finished. One of the very last things he says, John 18 records that for us. What's finished? What's, and what's the significance of that? It is finished. At last, it's over. I'm out of here. Whew, done with that. Some people read it that way, but it's not recorded that way. It's actually recorded in very careful language that is hard for us to pick up in our English translation just straight, but it really says or has the effect of this. Something that's been coming for a long time has now been fulfilled, and it stands accomplished. And it will reverberate from this point on through history. In other words, God's plan that he's been working for so long has been brought to its culmination right here on the cross, right here at this moment, and that reality is going to change every moment and every reality from this point on. When Jesus says it is finished, he's not saying, glad that's done. He's saying it's been accomplished, and it stands accomplished, and it will continue to have impact through the years. What did he accomplish? What did he accomplish? There's a lot of things that we could look at. I want to look at three key ones, three central ones. When Jesus died and then rose again, he conquered Satan, he conquered sin, and he conquered death. And because of that, it has changed the nature of the world and it changed the the, the reality of my life if I will respond. He's conquered Satan, he's conquered sin, and he's conquered death. So you're in Genesis 3, that's the right place to be because we're going to start with the Satan story, right? In Genesis, we see that um, Adam and Eve are living in the garden. There's only one restriction, and immediately they violate that restriction in good human form. Don't do that. Okay, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But they're pushed, right? They're still responsible, but something else is going on. Satan is there. He takes the form of a serpent, and he comes in temptation. And he says, you know, God's holding out on you. It's not, it's not really like he's saying, there's something more and you're going to miss out if you don't take this opportunity. And um, he uses a weapon in his temptation that he still uses today and that he tried to use on Jesus, right? Eve is standing there. She fails. She falls into the temptation. Adam is even more of a bonehead because he isn't fooled. He's standing there. He gets it and he says, I'm in and just kind of dives into the sin but it, it, the thing you, Satan uses to trigger this is, is he says, look at the fruit. And it says Eve saw the fruit, and she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and that it was going to make her like God. We're told in, in the book of First John that the world system, right, not, not, not the government so much, but the value system that drives us, our whole planet, is under Satan's influence. He's constantly manipulating, and he doesn't have sovereign control like God does, but he has a lot of power, and he's always using certain things to kind of drive us in the wrong direction. And that world system, the values of that, are laid out for us just a few chapters earlier in 1 John 2, where it says, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. For all this in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This world is passing away, and so are its lust. Only that that is of the Father will last. 
Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful part of life. In other words, I am defined by my appetites and I will do anything to meet those. It doesn't matter who's in my way or what's in my way, what I feel like right now, that's what matters. Whether it's my sexual appetite, my physical appetite, my appetite for sleep, my appetite for entertainment. It's like, that's gonna drive me. And I'm gonna go after that. Eve looks at the fruit and she says, that's gonna taste good. That's what it's appealing to. Jesus, his first act after he goes public and he identifies with us in the baptism of John, he goes to war. He goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And Satan comes along and says, you look pretty hungry, why don't you turn those stones into bread? Why don't you satisfy your physical appetite in this moment regardless of anyone or anything else? Doesn't matter what God wants or anyone else, just you, you, you you are how you feel, so do that. And Jesus said, I'm not gonna do it. Eve said, I'll take the fruit. That looks like it's gonna taste good. In Genesis, she looks at the fruit. It's good for food, and it's pleasing to the eye. All that glitters, that's what's drawing her. Remember with Jesus, Satan takes him up onto a high mountain, and in a moment he shows him all the kingdoms of this world and all of their glory. Look at that. Whoa, doesn't that look great? Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't you look good with that? How much of our culture is driven by that? Here's the image. Here's the glitter. Here's what you want. Here's what it looks like. Oh, pretty. Like fish, we chase after any shiny thing in front of us. Right? And the garden. This is gonna make me like God, which ironically, it made her less like God, not more like God. Right? This is gonna make me like God. You be you, you are important, you matter. The world needs to know you matter. You be you in such a way that everyone else wishes they were you. Right, you, you the man, you the woman, you stand up, you, that's, you, I get to be more like God, yeah. Right, what does he do? Jesus, he comes to Jesus, he says, hey, God can't let you die. I mean, you are the man, right? He can't, he can't let that happen. You jump off of here. Angels are gonna swoop in and protect. Then everyone will know. I mean, talk about an entrance. Man, you jumped off the temple. The angels caught you. And then you just stand there and go, that's right. And let stuff happen because everyone will know, right? The boastful pride of life. How do people look at me? What do I have? How do I feel about myself? What kind of power do I have? What kind of influence? And, and how do I use that to advance myself regardless of anyone else? That's what drives so much of our world system. That's what Satan's working. He worked that with Adam and Eve and he tried to work that on Jesus and he works that all the time. And at the cross, we're told Jesus takes Satan on. He says, I challenge you for this kingdom. It is my kingdom. I challenge you for these people. These are my people. You aren't the sheriff in town anymore. You never were. You were always a liar. And he goes to war. So that was prophesied at the very beginning. Genesis 3. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. Now he's talking to the serpent as a serpent right here. And then he's going to talk to Satan who's in the serpent in a minute. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now he's talking about Satan. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. Heal. He shall bruise your head. Oh, yeah, all right. Second time around, I'm a little confused. 
Jesus will bruise your head, Satan, and Satan, you will bruise Jesus' heel. There we go. We got the, let's get the theology right here. Read the scripture properly. From the very beginning, that's the oldest prophecy we have. When Jesus goes to the cross, it's not a surprise. God told us from the beginning, Satan's going to strike a blow. It's going to hurt. He's going to lay some bruise on Jesus. But in the process, his head's going to be crushed. So Jesus accomplishes that. He says, isn't it necessary that the, that, the, that the Messiah would suffer and then enter into his glory? We know that was coming, guys. Don't get thrown off by that. But in the process, what I've done is I fulfilled that ancient prophecy. Satan's been vanquished. Here's what it says in the New Testament, Colossians 2. Talking about us, it says, we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, and God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the demonic realm. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, Jesus struck the fatal blow to Satan and his kingdom. Or it says in Hebrews 2, again, we're the children in view here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In his dying, he put Satan to death. In his dying, he defeated Satan. That's the point. So when Jesus went to the cross, it had to unfold a certain way. He had to suffer and he had to die because he had to deal with great a great challenge, and in doing that, and then in, in rising again, saying it's real, it's true, I told you beforehand, you challenged me, saying you're making all these grand claims, how do we know? He said, you kill me and I'll come back to life? Well, guess what, here I am. There's the proof, it has happened, Satan has been vanquished. Satan is defeated. This is a day to celebrate because the world is a different place. The God of this world has been dealt the death blow. And the world is fundamentally different than it was. There's still evil, there's still problems, we still struggle, Satan is still at work, but we're also told greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, right? My adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, but if I resist him, he will flee. Hold that. Jesus says, you can do what I've assigned to you because all authority in heaven and earth is mine and I'm going with you. There's a different nature to the battle. One day, Satan will be completely removed from the picture. All of the things that we're gonna look at this morning, you can look at in, in Revelation 20, 21, and 22, and say, here's the final outcome. So there's the death blow that's happened, Satan is still at work, but everything's shifted, and I can have victory because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because the Messiah suffered and entered into his glory. Satan has been defeated, and I have the freedom to live life no longer under his thumb. And that's really good news, if, especially if you find yourself in a place where you feel like the deck is stacked against you, somebody's out to get you, and you can't seem to get past it. There may be a challenge or two or five or 50 that you have to wrestle through, but the fundamental reality is the enemy is defeated, and God will help you. All right, so Jesus conquers Satan. Then he conquers sin as well. If you want to turn over to Isaiah 53, just read a couple of verses there. Isaiah 53, remind ourselves of this truth. 
This is about Jesus. It's an extended poem from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. It's all about the Messiah. And it's been describing his suffering and all the challenge, which is kind of shocking. And then in verse 10, it, it clarifies things. It says, it was the will of the Lord, that's the Father, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In other words, the Father is, is in this devastation that's being meted out on the Son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. There's a shift there some, some sort, right? It's horrible. He's being crushed and yet he's going to make an offering for guilt and people are going to be affected by that and he's going to have joy in that. Huh. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, that is his knowledge of God, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, right? Therefore, I'll divide with him, I'll divide him a portion with the many, divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered to the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah is saying, in this suffering that Jesus is going to experience, he will deal with sin. He will deal with transgression. It'll be placed on him and he will offer righteousness. There's a shift that happens. Jesus has conquered sin, right? New Testament, here's a couple of verses. In uh, Romans 6, we're told that we were buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin's been defeated. Or 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. We die to sin and live to righteousness. So what's going on here? At the cross, Jesus made some pretty significant changes. For one, he dealt with the consequence of sin. We have lived under condemnation from the moment we drew our first breath because every single one of us by nature is a rebel against God, which is cosmic treason and carries the death penalty, and we're under condemnation. And the problem is we can't fix it because it just goes into the fiber of who we are. We have to be rescued even from ourselves, and that's what Jesus did. He made it possible for us to be forgiven for the consequences of sin to be dealt with another way. He paid the cost. So now I am free from the consequence of sin. But there's also something going on in my life about the practice of sin. Sin has been so deeply a part of our history. Genesis, the section we started in, we have the story of Adam and Eve and their choice to eat the fruit and sin. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are like a stone skipped across the surface of human history and it just kind of pauses here and here and here and each place it touches down, you look around and go, yep, same story, oh, yep, same story, oh, yep, same story, and it's just setting up a pattern to say this is how this world is. After Adam and Eve sinned, what happens? Next story, one brother kills another brother. Sin is alive and well. Next story after that, Noah, which starts by saying the Lord God looked out on the earth and he saw that every thought and intention of the heart of all of mankind was only evil continually. Did you catch the 
density of that language. Is it possible to say more words about we're sinful in less space? Every thought and intention of the heart of all of mankind was only evil continually. Sin is alive and well. Next story. We're supposed to go out and fill the earth and be fruitful and People say, we're not going to do that. We're going to gather together. We're going to go over here. We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower for our great name. Sin is alive and well. That's the pattern. And, and also there's a counterpoint running through Genesis 1 through 11 that says that's not the only story. God is still at work. And he's got people that he's preserving who will serve him and follow him. And there's these contrasting stories. But even those people are deeply flawed. They're riddled with sin. So if you follow it out of Genesis 1 through 11 and through the rest of the story, there's famous people, the greatest people, the ones that we look at and say, there's the ones God really shined on. There's the ones who really live for him, like Abraham, right? The Abrahamic covenant. He's the one who trusted God. Twice, not once, but twice, he married his wife off to a pagan king to save his own skin. That is not only cowardly, it is morally repugnant, and he doubled down, and he's the best. There's Moses. You don't get better than Moses, and Moses is a murderer. There's David, the king, the man after God's own heart, who commits adultery with a friend's wife and has the friend killed. These are the best, and they are so deeply flawed, and they're so deeply riddled because sin goes everywhere amongst all of us, and it is a great enemy, and it is an enemy within. I'm not going to do those things. I'm not going to marry my wife off to some pagan king. I have no intention of committing either adultery or murder. But my heart is still riddled with sin. I just have a little bit more socially acceptable ways of doing it, right? There's times that I'm not kind when I should be. There's times when my motives are anything but pure. There's times, probably a lot of times, when I really want the world to revolve around me. And I want you to understand that the world revolves around me too so that you help that happen. Right? Those are all sin. Right? That last one is actually the most pervasive. Right? It's literally me saying, I'm going to call the shots, I'm going to set the tone, I get to pick what's right and wrong here. It's me literally saying to God, I wish you were dead. I rule here. Wow. What a mess. And the problem is, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I really work hard at trying to live a virtuous life and a holy life, and I still stumble all the time. Maybe there's some people who've gotten it better than I have. I'm sure there are. I'm sure they stumble all the time too because it, we can't get past it. No matter how hard we try, we still struggle. We still stumble. We needed somebody to do something about that. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross, rose again and said, it's done. It is finished. I have conquered sin. So why do I still struggle? Well, because it has not fully worked its way out, Right? The consequence of sin is gone. At the very heart of who I am, I am different. He made him to be sin so that I might be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5. Right? So there's something different. But I still struggle. I still wrestle. But I now have the Holy Spirit living within me to help me live the life I'm called to live. Right? And I can at least choose now. I couldn't choose before. Now I have a choice. It says, walk by means of the Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
and you will be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. The nature of that's shifted, and one day it will be brought to its full expression, where I don't have to worry about it at all. But at this time and at this place, my relationship with sin is different. God doesn't see me as a sinner, and I have no consequence to bear. And he's given me resources to deal with the daily battle. And I can actually experience an increasing measure of victory in my life by the power of his spirit. Jesus did that on the cross. He conquered what has been plaguing us for the very beginning through all of human history, and that's available to me, and that's available to you because he died on the cross and he rose again and conquered sin. And he conquered death. The last one, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 25. Let me just read these verses real quickly. Talking about God when he brings everything to rightness. He will swallow up death forever. Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. That was the promise in Isaiah that Jesus actually accomplished. When he said it is finished, he was in the process of defeating death. 2 Timothy 1, we're told he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 says, you know, we're really foolish for what we believe. If it's not true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's not a nice thought. You're just stupid. I'm just stupid. Let's just admit it, we're idiots. But, he says in the middle of that, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Death came through one and life comes through another. And anyone can have new life through Christ because he's defeated death. So when Jesus died and he rose, everything about history changed. Everything about what it means to be human changed. He's not brought it to its full expression. When he comes back and, and, and exerts his full and complete rule, things will shift again. But he's given to you and to me and to any who will respond the ability to receive the resurrection life and to live out the reality of that. And that means I have power over Satan, I have power over sin, and death is no longer my enemy. Death has been around from the beginning. Genesis 5, there's a big old long list of names. We tend to ignore the names. There's some nuggets in there, one of which is you read the name, and it says this guy had this guy had this guy had this guy, and each time it says the same thing, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, because that's the human experience. We die. I was at a, a, an Easter party yesterday in my neighborhood. It was, it was a lot of fun. But thought about it later, and so much of it centered on death. Nobody was paying attention to that. It wasn't this somber occasion, but I just looked back, well, yeah, you know, I had this conversation with a friend, and she's a little bit younger than me. I won't give her age, but she's probably in her 50s somewhere, but lower end, and uh, she's talking about how she's going to work out three days a week with her 25-year-old daughter. She was doing five days a week, but that was too hard. The body was starting to break down, so now she's doing three, and she still hurts. Why is she doing that? Because she's dying. She's dying one body part of the time. And so am I, and so are you, right? It's all decaying. Some of us in this room are still like, not really. Yeah, it is. It'll, you'll get there. It'll happen. I'm sorry to say. It's just a universal experience. We're dying. Some of us are a piece at a time. And then we face 
the end of our life. Our, our heart stops beating. We stop breathing. Right? That's the universal human experience. And that's the universal human terror. And that's the universal human tragedy if that's the end of the story. Some of us in this room have recently lost family and friends and we still grieve. And if there's no resurrection, there's no, there's no sense. It just hurts and goes nowhere. There's just this dark hole that we look into and see no bottom. But that's not reality. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death, and even if my body ceases to live, my spirit will live forever, and my body will one day be resurrected. And that's all accomplished Good Friday and Easter. He conquered death. That changes everything. That worst moment in history actually worked out the greatest thing that could ever happen, and the world is fundamentally a safe place. The world is fundamentally a safe place if I belong to Christ, because no matter what is happening, he's got me, and the end of the story, we win. And he has all the grace that he needs to get me to the end of that story. However hard, bumpy, painful, a struggling story it may be, he's got it. On Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead and he said, I did it, I conquered it all. I conquered death, I conquered sin, I conquered Satan. And the question that we have to ask is, how are we responding? How are we responding? We need to remember with a freshness the beauty and the power that God would enter this world and die for us and that he would rise again and accomplish those things. And he says, now, resurrection life is yours. Resurrection power is yours if you receive it, if you respond. Some of us have responded, and so the question I would have for us is, is this a time just to celebrate? Just to kind of dust off the, our souls that have accumulated the kind of dirt and grime of life, dust them off and say, let's, let's be with Jesus afresh. Let's celebrate what he's done. Let this strike me in a fresh way. Lord, reach me in this moment to remind me of how precious, how extraordinary, how amazing it is that you died for me and that you rose again and that you love me. Help me in this moment, in these moments to follow, to actually access the resurrection power you're offering and help me to spread that good news with others. That's one response. For some of us, I, I wonder, I suspect there's at least some in the room who've never really, never really faced straight up. You're accountable to God. He's done extraordinary things because he loves you. What are you going to do with that? There's only one option that leads to his blessing. And that's to surrender and trust him. Any other pathway actually leads to death. Right? In, in John 3.16, we're told God loved the world so much he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would, perish but not, would not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn, condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 says the one who believes is not condemned, but the one who doesn't believe is already condemned. Right? We stand under condemnation. That's where we live naturally. So Jesus did the extraordinary. He died in my place. He rose again on Easter Sunday and he said, here you go, life with me, life eternal. 
I've conquered death, I've conquered sin, I've conquered Satan. I will empower you to live a life that is rich and full of meaning. The world is still a broken place. There will still be struggle. There will still be heartache. It's still gonna be a journey, but I got the grace for that journey too. One day I'm gonna finish the job and make everything completely right, and in the meantime, I'm gonna walk moment by moment with you. Are you in? Do you want that? Because the only pathway is for you to surrender and trust me to accept you need a savior and say, I believe that's you. I believe you died. I believe you rose. I have no claim on you, but I believe you're gracious. So I throw myself on your mercy and ask for you to, to save me. I ask for you to rescue me. Ask for you instead of condemning me to make me your child. Right? We sang that song earlier. I was a beggar, now I'm royalty. That's the gospel. And that's just free. Cost God everything. It costs me nothing but an, except surrender. I have to give up being God, which is actually pretty hard. So maybe some of you find yourself there. That would be my encouragement. That would be my strong urging. Surrender to God. He can be trusted. And every other pathway leads to death. And if you want to start a conversation, we'd love to do that. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. You have a card in front of you. You can fill out and let us know if you've got questions, you want to start a conversation. Um, if uh, you don't have time, feel a little rushed, that's fine. You can mark something and hand it to the ushers on your way out. Um, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful for your work in our lives. Thank you. Thank you. You have conquered sin. You have conquered Satan. You have conquered death. You have opened life. You have given it to us. You've given your spirit. Father, you've accepted us because of Jesus. I thank you for that. May we be overwhelmed with joy, not just in a happy Easter mood, but a radical worship mood because of the good thing you've done. And Lord, maybe there's some who need to respond. I pray that you would bring them to the place of understanding that they would surrender to your love, that they would do that today. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.